Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Who owns culture? Wow, Mr. Kim, that's quite the get up. See, si. me and my senorita, Mrs. Akim, need to go to costume party. Appa, what are you doing? I'm a Mexican burrito. <laughs> Think you mean bandito. Yeah, same, same. Appa, you can't dress like that. It's cultural appropriation. Okay. Cultural appropriation? It's just borrowing. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Why isn't the same true for culture? You take my Korean dress for Halloween? That's a cultural appropriation, Janet. No, that's different. I'm Korean. You were born in Canada. Our culture is not costume. Ugh, that's rich coming from a Korean guy dressed like a Mexican criminal. How do we tell the difference between appreciation and appropriation? Between exploration and exploitation. Why are you so concerned about this? I'll tell you why. Who owns culture? Because I believe Watley converted to Judaism just for the jokes. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Can anyone own a culture? When is it disrespectful to copy someone else's style? How do you draw the line between appreciation and appropriation? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, we're asking, who owns culture? Who owns culture? I, I feel like that's a weird way of thinking about the question, Ray. I mean, look, I understand how someone could own the rights to a particular song they wrote or something, but how could anyone own a whole culture? Well, think about like the British Museum. It's full of artifacts that you Brits stole from other people all around the world. Don't you think that that's taking stuff that belongs to another culture? Uh, guilty as charged, Governor. I mean, yeah, okay, if you wander around the world nicking things and hiking them back to a museum in a different country, I, I personally think that is stealing. But mostly, when we talk about cultural appropriation, we're not talking about that. We're, we're talking about borrowing an idea, and borrowing an idea isn't taking it away from someone. Yeah, but it's still stealing. I mean, that's why we have copyright laws. Well, okay, I'm, look, I'm not talking about plagiarism, like stealing a, a particular song or a book or something. I'm talking about a musical style. Like, what's wrong with getting inspired by rock or tango or, or reggae? Okay, but what if like a white artist takes a style that was created by people of color and makes a bunch of money off of it and then doesn't give anything back to the people who originally invented it? How is that okay? Well, that's not okay, but all I'm saying is I, I don't think all situations are like that. Let's think about Paul Simon and, and his album Graceland, right? So he borrowed some South African musical styles. He even featured a South African band, Ladysmith, Black Mambazo. And, and yeah, he made a bunch of money. That's true. But so did they. And he kind of put their genre on the map for a lot of folks who didn't know about it beforehand. Yeah, okay. Uh, so Graceland was a two-way cultural exchange. But, but what I'm complaining about is more like one-way taking. Like, what about all those cases where somebody just takes another culture's sacred objects and treats them like they're toys? Like like when white women wear bindis as a fashion statement. Yeah, that, that, that is kind of offensive. But, but I sort of wonder, even there, is it also harmful? I mean, look, it's harmful to steal artifacts. It's definitely harmful to profit from other people's work. But if somebody wears a bindi, isn't that basically a victimless crime? Well, it's just disrespectful. I mean, that's somebody's religion. It, it's supposed to be special and, and sacred. 
if everybody wears a bindi, then it's going to lose some of that specialness. Yeah, I mean, I see what you mean. And, and I, I think that could work for bindis. But I still feel like there's a lot of cases where cultural borrowing really is basically harmless. Yeah, like what? Well, a few years ago, there was this whole kerfuffle over hoop earrings, right? I mean, some folks were saying white women shouldn't wear hoop earrings because they're traditionally worn by people of color. I got to say that that didn't really make sense to me. I mean, no culture owns the circle. It's a basic geometrical shape. Okay, that one does seem a little overzealous. But cultural appropriation is a real problem. So what's wrong with being kind of on guard about it? Well... The way I see it, one danger is it's going to stifle creativity. Salman Rushdie said it, I think, really nicely. Hybridity is how newness enters the world. And yeah, don't we want newness to enter the world? We want that kind of two-way exchange. It's it's how cultures evolve and and grow and stay vibrant. Yeah, okay. I I see why you want that vibrancy and why stifling creativity is kind of bad. But if it helps us all get along, maybe it's still a price worth paying. But that's the thing, Ray. I, I don't think it does help us all get along. It, it makes us scared to communicate with each other. So we all huddle in our separate cultural boxes for fear of offending anyone. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we really need some way of drawing the line between like what's offensive and what's harmful and what's, you know, just good old cultural exchange. I agree. We really need some principles to guide us here. And hopefully our guest today can give us some. It's Dominic McIver-Lopez, author of a forthcoming book called Aesthetic Injustice that talks about a cultural appropriation and other kinds of harm in the world of art. But first, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to look into examples of white artists appropriating African-American music. She files this report. Swing low, really cultural appropriation if you just use your knowledge of another culture in your music composition. In 1892, the Czech composer Antonin Dvorak came to America to lead the new National Conservatory of Music in New York City. One of the burning questions facing classical music composers was how to express a national identity. Dvorak famously said that African-American music needs to be this essential component in American national classical composition. That's Douglas Shadle, a professor of musicology at the Vanderbilt School of Music. Dvorak told the New York Herald newspaper that in the quote, Negro Melodies of America, he discovered all that is needed for a great and noble school of music. The New World Symphony premiered at Carnegie Hall the following year, and people had a lot of opinions. It's really just funny to read the entire spread because some people say, oh, this is clearly heavily influenced by African-American music. And some people say, well, this just sounds Irish to me. And some people say, well, this just sounds Eastern European. And some people say, well, it could just be anything because it's so generic. It sounds like all folk music. And so no one really agrees on how the symphony actually sounds. The piece may have included some references to black music, but at the end of the day, it still sounded European. Certain black musicians said it did not work. Because you don't really understand what this music is, what it means, because you have not lived this life that I've lived. Compare that to music by a black composer. In America, the rise of jazz signified a shift in the American culture and music. One of those composers who helped with that shift was William Grant Still. 
Here is Dill's Afro-American Symphony of 1930. I don't necessarily agree with Chuck D and his, you know, famous line. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant to me as he straight out racist. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant, you know, expletive to me, you know, straight up racist, him and John Wayne. Emmett G. Price, the inaugural Dean of Africana Studies at Berklee College of Music, says in the debate around cultural appropriation, it matters how white musicians use their fame. This is my biggest record. And uh, it goes something like this. In this scene from Boz Lerman's biopic Elvis, the king hangs out with B.B. King and sees Little Richard perform. And he sings the hell out of that song. I would love to record that. If you do, you'll make a whole lot more money than that kid could ever dream of. Price says Elvis is a complicated situation. He grew up in a black neighborhood in Tupelo, Mississippi, raised musically on rhythm and blues and Pentecostal gospel. Elvis used to sit in the back of the church at East Trigg Baptist Church where the Reverend uh, W. Herbert Brewster was the pastor. And in that black Baptist church in Memphis, those brothers and sisters um, gave him absolute love, affirmation, and valued him used to call him Brother Elvis and treated him as since a surrogate family member. So did he have access to black people and black culture? Absolutely, there's no question about it. Elvis's fame rose with the civil rights movement and he had a huge black fan base. But Price's question is, did he leverage his celebrity on behalf of the people who loved him and inspired his music? When Elvis you know, recorded Ain't Nothing But A Hound Dog, you know, Big Mama Thornton, I mean, that he didn't write the song. And so how did he leverage his celebrity to help Big Mama Thornton come out of poverty? And the fact that he didn't do that is where we find the issue. But Elvis was lost in his own narrative and didn't necessarily have the maturity to understand his own power. Then there was the racist and discriminatory music industry, eager to use him to sell black music to a white audience. Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker. They are not putting a colored boy on the hayride. That's the thing. He's white. He's, He's white? That's all When black folks turn the radio on, they didn't get to pick whose version of the song played. And so Elvis Presley's music played and was permeated across the radio waves. To appropriate from the fictionalized movie version of B.B. King. You don't do the business, the business will do you. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.